Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes for the week ending October 2nd, 2020. This is videocast episode 50 and podcast episode 40. So welcome today. Uh, we're going to kick it off quickly as we do each week with the media spots where we cover a lot of information in a very short period of time. First, I'd like to thank Ellie Terrett and Cheryl Cassoni and Liz Clayman for having me on the Clayman Countdown on Monday. And what we covered in this section was, uh, in this segment was the jobs report coming up, which we saw today. Uh, I had said that, um, you know, it would likely be uh, higher than expectations, but most importantly that we would see potentially the unemployment rate slip below 8%. The consensus expectations were 8.2% down from 8.4, and I thought we might get a seven handle, and sure enough, we did. And if you talked to people just a couple months ago about, uh, maybe three, four months ago, about being at sub 8% unemployment, no one would have believed it. And sure enough, this morning, it, uh, it happened. So that was really good news to see. And the second thing that we talked about on the segment with Cheryl, was the uh, debate and election was coming up and what would be the implications of that. And, and basically, the, the core implication that's at stake as it relates to the stock market, uh, you know, not related to social policy and other things that are of importance, but for this podcast, we, we deal with the stock market, uh, was if you got a Democratic sweep um, where you'd have the executive branch, the Senate, and the House, all Democrat, then you would have affected the Democratic tax plan, which is two-pronged. Number one, it's to increase the corporate tax rate from 21 to 28 uh, percent, which would take 2021 earnings estimates down from 170 down to 150. David Costin had put out a note uh, a few weeks back to that effect. So when you reduce earnings by that magnitude, in this case $20 on the S&P 500, uh, you're going to have an impact uh, to the pricing of the stock market. So as earnings come down, the stock market comes down, but there's also the factor of the multiple applied to those earnings. So right now we're trading about 20 times. Uh, if you brought earnings down that quickly, that multiple would likely contract because it would be anticipating slower growth. So you'd not only get the drop in earnings, but you'd get a drop in multiple, which could potentially lead to a re-rating of about 18 to 25%, uh, a lower value in, in the general indices, number one. And number two is the long-term capital gains uh, in the Democratic tax plan is uh, to increase it from 20% to, uh, that's X, the, um, the healthcare tax, 20% to 39.6%. In other words, tax it as ordinary income. So if you did see a blue sweep, you would see a race to the exits before year end, a lot of selling of stocks to lock in the lower tax rate, uh, particularly in those stocks. Uh, and everyone knows the concentrated handful of stocks uh, Fang Plus that have had big runs, you'd see a lot of uh, aggressive selling in those. So, um, but so that so that's the bad news. The good news is the probability of a sweep is lower than it uh, was in August. So, regardless of whether you get a Republican president or a Democratic pre president, the key is you want to see either the Senate 
or the house the other party that means nothing changes in the tax rate and if nothing changes in, in the tax rate regardless of who's elected that's very very bullish for the stock market so that's what we're looking at uh, just in terms of the math of it on a stock stock market basis and as i've said on a few spots uh gridlock is good so um the second spot that I want to cover, and we're going to talk about the president. Obviously, that's major, major news today. So I, I didn't forget. And that's a very serious matter. And we're going to address that. Um, want to cover on Tuesday, I was on with Brad Smith on Cheddar. Uh, by the way, uh, thanks again to Ellie Terrett, Cheryl Cassoni, and Liz Clayman for having me on Monday on Fox Business. Now on to Cheddar on Tuesday, Cheddar TV with Brad Smith. And um, I want to thank not only Brad Smith, but Francesca Conti for having me on. And um, what we talked about, we were following up on a longstanding conversation I've had with Brad. Uh, I was on September 1st when I was talking about the most loved and most hated stock in the S&P 500. And I was saying at that point, Apple was overvalued trading at 39 times current year, 33 times forward at that time. And the highest multiple it had traded at in the last 15 years was 26 times and the average was in, in the mid-teens. So I thought it was overdone and literally to the day it, it sold off and it's been under pressure ever since. And um, what we were talking about is that the reopening trade has really begun to work in September and that um, industrials, materials, trans transports, financials have all outperformed tech in the month of September, reversing the trend. And uh, the market is really sniffing out that we're going to be reopening. And you're, you see the, the, uh, the recovery numbers in China are about three months ahead of us because their peak cases was about three months ahead of us. And um, they're they're just beating expectations and they're getting back to life. You know, you're seeing uh, their movie theaters are open. I, I believe 80 percent at this point of their movie theaters are open. Their domestic air travel was 86 uh, percent of pre pandemics in August. It looks to be closer to 100 percent domestic in uh, September. And there's no vaccine or there's no magic treatment. People just wear the mask. They do their best. They get back to their life and, and they move on. And that's what we're doing here in the United States. However, we did have some breakthroughs in terms of treatment, which we'll also discuss today, uh, one of which relates to the president, which is which is also really helpful. The other thing that we were talking about with Brad was that this um, outperformance of cyclicals and value over tech and growth in the month of September, the beginning of this trend, the reopening trade, um, was also confirmed by earnings expectations for 2021, in which case you're going to see that the sectors that are going to outperform the S&P 500 are uh, S&P 500 is going to grow at about 26 percent. Uh, industrials are going to grow at 87.4 percent. Materials at about 30 percent. Financials at about 30 percent. Uh, and also consumer discretionary at 74.4 percent which was consistent with the consumer confidence number that came out earlier this week that crushed expectations at 101.8. And today we saw the consumer sentiment number, which we'll cover later, which also beat expectations. So just as was the case of China, had their first positive print for the consumer in uh, August, 
after many months of uh, industri uh, uh, industrial production and uh, construction being very strong, and as I had said in previous shows, that the consumer was the lagging indicator and that would come about. It came about in China. It's now coming about in the U.S. The consumer is coming back. And, you know, it's not that people are ignoring the risks. I think they're just better at dealing with it. We know when we go out in, into public places uh, indoors, we've got to wear masks and uh, social distance when we can and, you know, do all the protocols. And if you do that, your odds are going to go, go down. And then when you do get it, the odds of, you know, having a, uh, a really bad outcome have really diminished with the treatments uh, that are available and um, the doctor's knowledge just from experience. So, um, and that also contrasts, so while we just covered uh, four sectors that are gonna dramatically out, five sectors that are gonna dramatically outperform uh, the S&P in terms of 26% earnings growth, more than 26% earnings growth, tech is gonna grow at about half the earnings growth rate at just 13.7% in 2021. And that's why we've been pounding the table for the last couple of months that to start to uh, get exposure to cyclicals and lean into the reopening trade and the trigger was gonna be the vaccine. And, uh, and that's really what we saw. The other thing that we discussed is that uh, housing is, has led us out of every single recession post-World War II with the exception of 2008 and 2009. And why was that? Because 2008 and 2009, housing was the problem. So you don't often solve the problem uh, with the same problem. And um, uh, so what we're seeing is a combination of multi-decade low inventories, dramatically high demand from 85 million millennials who are now average age 30 and starting housing formation, which was a trend that was beginning before COVID. It's dramatically accelerated since COVID. You've got sub 3% mortgage rates. You have the economic, uh, the uh, urban exodus rather. And um, and all of that is, is a positive. So uh, that was the key thing with, with Brad. And it's always fun to be on with Brad Smith on Cheddar. And thanks to Francesca Conti for inviting me on. Want to thank uh, Sarah Smith and Kristen Myers for having me on Yahoo Finance on Wednesday. And what we really went into detail on Wednesday was uh, one, the ADP report was out. And one of the things I wanted to highlight with that was that uh, the expectation beat uh, materially with 749,000 uh, added payrolls relative to 650,000 estimate and 481,000 in the previous print. But what was what was very interesting was that you added a lot of jobs in the heartland. You added 7,000 jobs in mining, 60,000 jobs in construction, and 130,000 in manufacturing. That, that was key. Uh, and, uh, and we saw that. And, and the other thing that I said to Kristen was, don't be surprised on Friday, although very few people are looking for it, if we get a seven handle in front of the unemployment rate. And sure enough, we did. Uh, the payroll additions were a little light this morning, but the uh, unemployment rate coming down was a major, major positive. And the most important thing on Thursday, we saw continuing claims continue to come down. So, that, so that's critically important. Um, 
the other factor, the key thing that we covered, uh, you know, you, you saw uh, Chicago PMIs beat, so that's manufacturing was huge. We saw more prints like that today, which we'll cover later. Pending home sales up 8.8%. And um, the information vacuum. So, you know, there was this back and forth on Wednesday, which has persisted through the end of the week of what, you know, what will happen, stimulus, no stimulus, Etc. And and I've been of the position, and those of you who listened last week, I thought it was low probability to get a uh, stimulus package agreed to, and that still somewhat appears to be the case. Although there was some positive rhetoric this afternoon, back and forth, and the market was trading back and forth on Nancy Pelosi and and maybe the um, President Trump coming down with COVID will change the dynamic in some way. We'll we'll find out over the weekend. But my my base case has always been that they wouldn't come to an agreement before the election, that they were running down the clock, and that uh, more likely the president would have to do a second executive order, which has a couple hundred years of precedence, that once the money is allocated from Congress, he has vast discretion in how it can be spent. There's $380 billion sitting on the table, and that would be more than enough to potentially get a second stimulus package out, maybe with lower income thresholds, uh, a stimulus check rather, extend the uh, uh, enhanced unemployment for those who are most at need, because by and large, the general economy, uh, small businesses definitely need some help, but um, it's not a make or break for the V-shaped recovery uh, for us to get another stimulus package. It is make or break for you know five or 10 million people who desperately need it, and they ought to do that because these people's livelihoods were taken away without their consent. Uh, the businesses they work for were closed down or their own businesses were closed down on the mandate of the government, and they need to be made whole. And this is the kind of thing that, that needs to be done. So hopefully they'll get it done this weekend. If not, by Monday, I, I would not be surprised to see President Trump exec, uh, issue an executive order. And that's something that really few people are talking about as an option. And um, and I think it's positive either way. Ideally, they come to the middle. I think the Republicans are at 1.6 now and the Democrats are 2.2. If they can't get to the middle of that, they should all be fired. End of story. But um, and then the last thing that uh, Kristen was asking me about was the information vacuum. You know, why are you know, you've had this constant back and forth uh, um, of uncertainty in the market all September? And basically, I was saying we need to fill up the vacuum. It consists of four different parts. The uh, more information on the vaccine, we've got four in phase three. We had a new breakthrough treatment on Tuesday, which was the um, Regeneron monoclonal antibodies that had a, a phase one test of 275 patients. It took the um, duration of the symptom. Uh, period from 13 days down to six days. So patients who took this this cocktail, antibiotic cocktail of people who had had COVID before, and then also I think Regeneron manufactures another antibody, at least that's the case in the polyclonal, which the president just took today, which, which we'll talk about. Um, 
but this is a huge breakthrough. If it cuts down the duration in half, you get it in you early. This is just another huge breakthrough in treatments, which in some sense may be more important than vaccine because the vaccine you got to will get it hopefully before the end of the year. Then you got to distribute it. Then you got to get everyone to take it and feel that it's safe. So that's that's months. If you get a treatment out there that works, like we have the remdesivir, we have the steroids, we have some other things uh, um, that are being used around the world. But this uh, could certainly be positive, particularly with uh, President Trump, you know, at, at his his age and, and everything else that he has, having taken this immediately upon getting the symptoms, if he can get through this very, very quickly, I think it would be really, really bullish for the economy. Very obviously, most importantly, key that his health is good and he's back just as a human being, um, but uh, would be really, really comforting because it would give hope to everyone that we finally have a treatment that uh, can can just cut this thing in half, which would be amazing. So that's really good news. And we had talked about that as one of the things that was just as important as the vaccine in the information vacuum. Um, the earnings, 69% less companies are issuing negative guidance for this quarter coming up. We're going to start earnings within two weeks or less, um, which is 69% uh, less than average issuing negative guidance. And many companies are taking up their estimates. 2021 earnings estimates for the S&P 500 have gone up. So a lot of good things happening in that information vacuum. But people want to see those earnings in the next couple of weeks. And they want to um, see the guidance more than anything else. The guidance is going to be key. The, the third thing was the election. Uh, obviously, the dynamic changed a little bit, uh, uh, the, you know, today in terms of um, the, the, the key thing here being we need gridlock no matter what the outcome so that the corporate tax rate doesn't go up. Corporate tax rate goes up. You're going to see earnings come down. The stock market will come down. Now, there was a note out by Goldman that people are confusing this week saying if it was a blue sweep, it would be fine because they would make it up with fiscal spending. Um, there, no matter who's elected, they're going to do an infrastructure package. That's just long overdue. That's number one. But number two, is what that note said was by 2024. So you may be of the opinion that it makes sense to make the short-term sacrifice, take a 20, 25% uh, revaluation of the stock market lower if you increase the corporate tax rate in the short term, because four years from now, you can get back to these levels due to the fiscal spending. And you know, for many people that might make sense in exchange for social reform and that type of thing, but just know what you're buying before you buy it. If you increase the corporate taxes, the stock market will come down. There's just no two ways about it in the intermediate term. That could get changed. It may not take four years because it could get changed back in the midterm elections. But, um, well, it wouldn't be changed back because you'd still have a, a Democratic president that wouldn't sign a tax cut. So, yeah, it would probably take four years per the Goldman note. And then the last thing was the stimulus. So you had the four things of the inter information vacuum that we're trying to fill on a daily basis, the vaccine, the earnings, the election, and the stimulus, deal or no deal. And I emphasized uh, higher probability of an executive order than a deal that might have changed this morning with the president and the first lady's diagnosis, but it remains to be seen. So thank you to Kristen Myers and, and thank you to Sarah Smith for having me on Wednesday. 
Uh, really enjoyed that. Moving on, a couple quick quotes in the Wall Street Journal on the 28th, I guess that was Monday. Want to thank Alexander Osipovich and Anna Isaac for including me in their article. And uh, the quote was that, okay, Thomas Hayes, chairman of uh, Great Hill Capital said his firm bought shares of Wells Fargo and other banks. He expects such stocks to fare better than technology stocks that drove the market's rally from March to September. That's where you're going to outperform with the things that have been left behind so far. Cyclical stocks like banks tend to beat the broader market during recoveries from recessions. And we're going to go into that in more depth. So, so thank you again to Alexander Osipovich and Anna Isaac. Uh, then on the same day, um, uh, Devik Jain and Sriyashi Sanyal uh, uh, had me in their article. The quote was, it's the end of the month. Most of the real rebalancing is in the rearview mirror. If you remember, we had that bounce on Friday and Monday. That was a lot of rebalancing because the market had been down so much. They had to regain exposure to equities. And the market has its eyes set on the debate tonight. So this was Tuesday morning for an indication of how policy is going to look in the next 12 months. That's critical as far as what our tax is going to be. We, we can't belabor that anymore. And the outcome from the debate on Tuesday was, you know, that was just um, that was that was two hours. I'll never get back. That was tough to watch <laughs> for both sides. I mean, um, anyway, so, uh, OK, then I'd like to thank. Uh, so thanks again to Devik Jain and Sriyashi Sanyal. And finally, an article in the U.S. News & World Report. I'd like to thank Ellen Chang for including me in her article. She writes for the U.S. News & World Report and for thestreet.com. And her article was about hedging a potential correction in Q4. And I referenced it yesterday because she interviewed me, uh, I think, last week for this article that went to print this week. And um, I said... You know, the market was down materially at that point. It was before the bounce. And I said that the time to buy is insurance is before your house goes on fire. You know, we had already had a pretty big correction. That's not to say there's not more to work out, particularly in, in the overall tech stocks. But um, really, there was opportunity. So the quote was... Uh, investors who have cash sitting on the sidelines will find that, quote, now is a great time to be selectively picking up laggard stocks in the financials, industrials, materials, and small pockets of energy that will outperform in the early part of the new cycle, says Tom Hayes. Uh, gross domestic product growth of about 6% will occur in 2021 due to the magnitude and the response to the short-term contraction. This is when cyclicals have relative outperformance in S&P Earnings estimates for 2021 support this thesis. Energy, consumer, discretionary financials, and materials will grow at a faster pace than the S&P 500. So re-emphasizing the same theme. And if you've been with me for some time, you know I've been ahead of the curve on this. I mean, we've been pounding the table on this since August. And now it seems that to be consensus because you're, you saw the big money rotation start in the month of September. So for some time... People thought it was going to be impossible to see any money ever come out of FANG, and, and now it's happening. Now, uh, want to send out our best thoughts and prayers to the first family, um, to the president, to uh, the first lady, Melania, and, um, and obviously uh, Barron and extended family, etc., so President Trump was diagnosed with uh, COVID overnight. Uh, the market was down big on that in the morning. Then there was talk about a stimulus. And you also had the unemployment rate drop below 
8% as well as talks of a stimulus in the morning and the market, uh, certainly the Dow wound up flat, S&P and NASDAQ, NASDAQ was down pretty materially and the S&P was uh, uh, down less than that. Um, what was interesting to see, the president's taking you know, zinc and vitamin D, but the most important thing he's taking was something we put out on Tuesday and we talked about on TV that this was probably as important as the vaccine was the the potentiality of this uh, it's Lilly and Regeneron's monoclonal antibodies today. So effectively, what they had was a phase one with 275 patients. Uh, their symptoms just disappearing after a median of six days of receiving a low dose compared with 13 days who took just a placebo. And similarly, only 4.9% of low-dose patients required additional medical visits uh, compared to 7.7% for those who took high-dose and 15.2% who took placebo. So three times as many people um, who didn't take it had to go to the hospital. So this, this could be a breakthrough. And I really think if uh, the president comes out of this very quickly at his, his age, etc., that this is going to be a major course of treatment and it's going to get through phase two and three exceptionally quickly. So um, uh, let, let's hope it works. Uh, obviously, number one for the president uh, as a human being, as the president of our country, uh, for our nation, and then for everybody, 330 million people, and then plus around the world who could benefit from from his courage to take it early days after um, just a 275 person study. So this is really uh, courageous and great to see and maybe really, really good for, for the whole country. Next, um, we'll get to our article of the week. I, I do wanna just quickly, because I often forget it at the end, uh, we have our ask me anything question of the week. And this comes from Ben, he says, Tom, if we get a correction in October, would the Russell 2000 and NASDAQ 100 possibly fall the, the approximate same percent, even though the NASDAQ 100 is approximately 16% above its 200-day moving average, and the Russell is only approximately 4% above its 200-day moving average, since the NASDAQ 100 is heavy growth and the Russell is 2000 is heavy value? So um, I guess this is a good question. I, I don't think it uh, so my answer is not going to be related to how much it's above its 200-day moving average. I, I think that's less important than just the underlying fundamental thesis. And my general thesis is that um, it's based on historical data that uh, cyclicals and value outperform in the early stages of a high economic growth environment, which we are entering. And uh, I'll cut a little bit ahead if you look at the GDP now estimates for uh, third quarter of 2020 is now 34.6% uh, as of yesterday, up from 32% a week ago. So, um, you know, the economy is recovering extremely quick. And as I referenced on Kristen's show, GDP is going to grow over 6% next year. 
how do we know that? I mean, nothing's guaranteed, but when you increase M2 money supply 25% year on year, you usually get about a fourth into the real economy. And, uh, and that would be a reasonable number. And that's when you're gonna see cyclicals outperform. So if you did see further pressure in the market in um, October, it would be overweight pressure in tech and in, in the over-owned names that everyone's over-concentrated in due to their weightings in the indices relative to those cyclicals where money would start to rotate as managers are sniffing out earnings growth in those fast-growing sectors. As a matter of fact, um, I'm, I'm going to skip around a bit here because it supports the point that uh, Ben is trying to figure out here with his good question this week. Um, okay, so again, just to reemphasize the earnings growth expectations for 2021, if you look at this chart here, energy is going to be the fastest growing sector. The reason there's no percentage is because they have no earnings this year, but uh, <laughs> their earnings are negative. Uh, but that's understandable when you shut the world down for three, three, three months. Uh, then in, followed by industrials at 87%, consumer discretionary at 74, materials at 29, financials at 23, S&P at just about 26, and then health, uh, technologies down to 13.5, so half of the S&P. So that's where the pain is going to be in the lowest earnings growth pockets of over-owned stocks that have pulled a lot of earnings growth forward due to COVID this year. And um, the other thing that was really interesting that came out today, this is fact set, by the way, that I'm reading from. It says it actually, but I just want to reemphasize their work. That's really valuable that they put out. Um, okay, so what they're talking about here. Okay, at the company level, the 10 stocks in the S&P 500 with the largest upside and downside differences between their median target price, that's a 12-month target price, and their closing price as of yesterday, October 1st, can be found on the next page. It's interesting to note that the 10 S&P stocks expected to see the highest, the largest price increases are all in the energy sector. Now, you can't sell this to anyone right now. Even if you're the guy who can sell ice to an Eskimo, you ain't selling anyone on this story. I'm buying it, but you know, no one else is. Uh, but if it takes two years instead of one year, I also, it doesn't, I, I'm fine with that. So, um, but here, here is the table. So you see like Diamondback has a, a target consensus target price of $55. It closed at uh, 29.09 yesterday. So that's an 89% upside. EOG price target 64 closed at 34, upside at 83%. Apache 17 Dollar price target closed at 931, 82% upside. Devon closed at $9, target 16, upside of 75%. And it goes on and on. Holly Frontier uh, target price 32.50, closed at 1894, 71% upside. Valero, Concho, Slumberger closed at $15, uh, upside of 24.50, 63 upside. On the flip side, the difference between the median, the bottom 10 were. Um, uh, American Airlines, I, I, I would I would take the other side of that trade. Uh, Twitter's trading above its price target. Okay, I, I, you know, Under Armour. You know, the, these are stocks actually that their price targets have come down so much that they haven't started re-rating the stock as it's moved up ahead of their um, depressed, depressionary 
price target. So I, I'd be less interested in this downside list than I uh, am in the upside list. And as I've said before, you, you really got to go the top of the food chain on energy because probably another 20, 25% are going to go bankrupt and you got to have a long-term view. But I do think that, uh, uh, you know, certainly we're going to see, a, I, I think we're going to see a commodity cycle over the next three to five years. You started to see it a little bit in grains and certainly in copper in the last couple of months um, with the dollar weakening, et cetera. It'll move in fits and starts, but, you know, three to five years out. Plus, you've, you know, taken the rig count. Rig count came up a little bit this week, but it's still down, you know, from 1400 down to 183 or whatever it is since the peak in 2014. Um, and you also have these cuts that are going to go through April of 2022 every single month. And looking at the Chinese um, trajectory that will follow a few months behind, once we lift the 14-day quarantine for travel, everyone's going to start traveling. I've traveled. Many people have traveled. Everyone wears masks. They got the, the HEPA filters. It's totally safe. And it's just the quarantine. People can't afford to travel for a week and then have to sit home for 14 days. You know, how are they going to get their kids to school? How are they going to go to their job, etc.? Lift that. You'll see travel bounce back. Oil demand, demand will just go through the roof. And um, and 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 that sector will be back off to the races. Not you know not the same thing. I understand the secular trends and all that, but you know these things are just priced for death. And you know when people talk about renewables and everything else, the pace at which the global population and demand growth is rising, we could hit full throttle on renewables, and it would just be enough to offset the population growth. Uh, in the developing world so that we wouldn't have to do more fossil fuels. But the idea of doing less fossil fuels in the next 10 to 15 years as the population grows is, uh, is, is, is unrealistic. And if institutions don't want to own them, um, th you know, they're still going to generate that cash. So if they trade at very, very low multiples, they'll just get taken private and the money will get dividended out to private equity people as the cash flows continue to just pour in in a quasi-inflationary environment and, uh, and, and demand stability while, while more than 25% of, uh, of the bottom end went bankrupt. So you're going to have less suppliers uh, equal to greater demand. And... Um, and, and, and global economic growth coming back all at the same time you've had these artificial cuts that are going to persist into 2022, it, it, it looks well. And, and this table really, really brings it out. But this is a story that can't be sold right now, so we'll, we'll move on to something else. And um, okay, so thanks again to Ellen. And then uh, so let's move into the Build Me Up Buttercup stock market and sentiment results. This was the article of the week. Uh, I love the Mark Twain quote, October is one of the uh, peculiarly dangerous months to speculate in stocks. The others are January, July, September, April, November, May, March, June, December, August, and February. That, that, that was a guy with a sense of humor. So uh, I got the idea for this song this week when my eldest daughter Mimi, her full name is Madeline, but she will not respond to it, uh, was uh, two, she's now eight. She'd go into, you know, we'd go, go drive or drive around, go to the store, whatever. She would just be crying all the time. And one day I was, I had the scan button on where it just bounces from station to station every few seconds until you find something you like. And this song came on, Build Me Up Buttercup. All of a sudden she just stopped crying. She sat there, she smiled, and she just started 
you know, bopping along. So for literally like a year and a half, we had to play this. And the other song she would actually uh, do the same thing to was that Call Me Maybe. Um, I don't know who wrote it, but that's another one. But long story short, the key things, so Build Me Up Buttercup, Don't Break My Heart. So we're talking about the, you know, the, the bounce coming into Wednesday and all the setup looking like everyone's very, very confident by Wednesday that when this article was written that the pain in tech is over because it moved, you know, the NASDAQ moved back above its 50 day or whatever it was. And, and maybe that's the case, but I, I do think there's probably a little bit more, you know, as we've said in the last couple of weeks, I think there's probably a little bit more for tech to work out um, and take some of that froth out and the beneficiaries are, are gonna be cyclicals. So we covered um, uh, the, the media spots. Again, thanks to uh, Ellie, Cheryl, and Liz, Brad and, um, Brad and Francesca, and Kristen and Sarah. We went through that. Now, the reopening trade, we've covered the sectors that are going to grow faster than the S&P, the sectors that are going to grow slower than the S&P in 2020, and the conditions of the reopening trade. Number one, um, cyclicals outperform in that environment and the reason that cyclicals start to outperform is that managers have an abundance of choice in where they can buy earnings growth <clears throat> more companies are providing earnings growth so managers can then choose from a greater supply whereas in a slow growth economic environment there's a scarcity of companies from which you can buy earnings growth. And that's why you saw the FANG phenomenon, FANG plus five to seven stocks where you could see real growth and everyone had to own them because at sub 2% GDP growth, you're not going to have a huge amount of companies you can choose from where you can get earnings growth at a reasonable price. Now that we're looking forward to 26% S&P growth, 6% GDP growth, uh, in 2021 off a low base, now the opportunities become abundant. And when, when the supply gets bigger, price comes down and the price for earnings growth is now coming down because uh, you can get into some of these uh, um, stocks. So the catalyst for the reopening trade is a vaccine or treatment. And that's happening, the reopening, the catalyst for the stay at home trade um, and those um, uh, highly priced Stocks uh, are shutdowns lock and lockdowns and delays in reopening uh, the economy. So, um, so we've covered that. The other thing is, um, this table was put out by Ned Davis Research. Uh, Ned Davis Research, and it charts from nineteen, basically nineteen thirty-two to the present day the trend of outperformance between value cyclicals and you know growth tech basically but let's just put it between growth and value low price versus high price stocks and there's some nuance that goes into that but historically with the exception of the last decade uh, buying stocks at 10 times sales has led to economic disaster it's worked so far for the last decade. Whether that will persist or not remains to be seen. But uh, the last time you had this decade plus outperformance of growth relative to value was the 1990s. You can see it here. And what happened after? Uh, this is very interesting. This was a report 
um, quoted on in, um, institutionalinvestor.com, and they were quoting dimensional fund advisors who were the first shop to really discern these factors and study them over time. But what happened the last time you had this decade-long outperformance of growth relative to value in one and a half years, so it growth had outperformed value stocks over the one-year period, five-year period, 10-year, and even 15 years as of March 31st, 2001. And one year later, just uh, one year later, the value stocks had regained all of that advantage from 15 years in one year. And then the trend resumed down. So while you've had this uh, 10 plus you know, uh, year period like you had in uh, from the late 80s to 2000, 2001, we've had the same thing from call it 2006, 2007 to now, when it reverses, it can reverse all at once. And maybe September was the first month um, where effectively the highest weight sectors are gonna be less highly weighted and the lower weight sectors uh, are going to start to be a higher weight in the S&P 500. So it doesn't necessarily mean the indices are going to do poorly. It just means who's going to be winning under the surface is going to change on a relative basis. And that does not mean it's zero sum that all tech stocks will fail or all energy stocks will succeed. It's certainly not the case. It will just mean that you can now buy high quality franchises that are going to start to have earnings growth and, and in the first part of a new cycle, 12 to 24 months, they tend to relatively outperform uh, those sectors that have, that, have, that have had their run. So uh, this is a nice visual from Ned Davis Research. Really uh, glad they put that out. And um, the other thing that I just wanted to get into long-term context here is as much as you can understand these you know, periodic phases where growth actually outperforms, over the long-term, it does not. Uh, the long-term return since 19, December 1927 through March, uh, through March 2020 of growth is 9.7% um, uh, compounded annually since, uh, I'm sorry, since July 1926. The long-term return for value since the same time period is 12.7%, so 300 basis points more. Now you say, well, that's only 3%. Well, <laughs> 3% is orders of magnitude greater. Why? Well, let's talk about money. So if you had invested $1 in value and $1 in growth in 1927, today the value investment would be worth 18 times more than the growth investment, okay? Uh, so $51,514, that dollar turned into $51,514 if you put it in value. If you put it in growth, it was worth just under $3,000. So $2,922. And by the way, this reminds me of, if you remember, we talked about the performance of the S&P 500 relative to gold. Um, I think it was if you put $10,000 in gold or the S&P 500 in 1942 by 2018, you had $51 million if you'd invested in the S&P versus $500,000 if you'd invested in gold. Uh, so it cost you $51 million to hedge inflation with gold versus hedging it with the, the pricing power of the top companies in the world as represented by the S&P 500. So this is a similar thing. So in the short term, some of these things have runs and they fake people out and people get overweight 
but in the long term, um, it's you know, short term is a voting machine, long term is a weighing machine, and the facts are the facts. You know, 18 times. Now you could say, no, 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 the world's changed because back then they made money, you know, um, smelting steel and you know, drilling oil, and we're we're too high tech now. Uh, the capex is different. The whole structure of the economy is different. Uh, let's see. You had the Nifty Fifty in the '70s, and this still played out. You you had biotech. You've had these periods of low capex businesses. Uh, fundamentally, you know, and some low capex businesses are now value businesses. So I I think that um, once you see the general economy, the GDP growth get back well above two percent, and I think we're going to see six percent next year. Um, you're going to see all of these value and cyclical stocks start to relatively outperform and uh, revert back to the, the long-term trend line over, over 100 years. So that is a big deal. Next, I want to shift gears to, boy, we, this is our 50th uh, video cast. We've got a ton of stuff. So this is an anniversary edition. You're going to get uh, more value for the same price, which is, by the way, the same great price since episode one, free. <laughs> so... Um, Okay, so in uh, 2002, Spike Lee put out a movie called The 25th Hour, and Edward Norton, one of the great actors, uh, was making a toast in a nightclub, and he said, champagne for my real friends and real pain for my sham friends. And, um, you know, in my uh, single days in my 20s, I was with actually my fiance, now wife at the time, and we were at Bungalow 8. Uh, which was a big, big place. Uh, Amy Sacco was there, and uh, and so was Cameron Diaz. And I made that same toast, and people were blown away as if I had thought of it myself. So I didn't mention that uh, it actually came from the movie. But by the way, they, the movie stole it from some artist from 100 years ago, so I didn't feel as bad. Nonetheless, it's a great quote. And it's in the context of this sentiment chart, which has made its uh, uh, rounds around the uh, around uh, the trading community for for uh, over a decade. And I saw it pop up this this uh, this uh, in the last couple of weeks. And I was like, oh, where is that? And I pulled up my old hard drives and I got it. And it was mind boggling because it just shows this is the same sentiment pattern, whether it's the stock market an individual sector or an individual stock. And you know, I've been talking about Wells Fargo for a while, you know, it's one position in a, in a very large portfolio, but it's an important position. And I think it's gonna be one of the best ideas I've, I've had in my career if it, if it plays out as anticipated in, in, the, in the next uh, year, two years, and it could be much faster. But um, it was uncanny that this popped up because it's making the exact same pattern as this puzzle. And every time I've had a period in history where I'm like, what's going on? I pull out this map and it's been a couple years since I've had to pull it out. I pull it out and it always fits the puzzle and it always resolves in this way um, um, You know, when, when the underlying fundamentals support it. So what this chart is saying is that you know stocks get to these points of enthusiasm, then they crash to panic, then they crash more to discouragement, then they monkey around, and then they climb the wall of worry up to anxiety, and then they crash again to aversion, and then they start their uh, climb when no one else believes in the stock again. And um, I think we're in a version on a lot of the cyclicals, actually. If you look at ExxonMobil, it's making this exact pattern. Um, if you look at EOG, if you look at PXD, 
but particularly uh, Wells Fargo is making this to the to the tick. And as I was actually annotating the Wells Fargo chart, I couldn't believe how perfectly it was it was um, following the pattern. So so the the reason for the quote is um, real. You know what I said was it's behaving. Wells Fargo is behaving exactly as it should, causing quote real pain to its sham friends and soon to bring champagne to its real friends. The sham friends are those who bail when the going gets tough, as it's done all this chop building its base down here. And the um, the real friends are those who stick, stick out the tough times and are ultimately going to enjoy a celebration and some champagne. So look at this pattern now. You know, you hit this um, returning confidence enthusiasm, subtle warning, overt warning when it broke this, same thing up here. Then you get the crash into panic, okay? Then you then you crash lower into discouragement. Here it is again, panic, lower into discouragement. You just muddled around, muddled around. Then you shot up back again to anxiety, okay? You got things going right back up to that trend line again. And then you crash down here and now we're in this aversion. And this aversion has been a prolonged aversion, uh, certainly no fun, this aversion doing nothing for months. Um, and now it looks like we are moving up from aversion to denial. There will be a shakeout and then we'll just rock it up to returning confidence. And then we'll be back in enthusiasm and, and we'll be lightening up while everyone is starting to get interested in financials. But um, and, and by the way, this is where people will start to buy breakouts after the move has has been made and maybe they'll they'll have a lot more to go i think these are secular runners because i think they're tied into the housing recovery uh and um and they're going to be an opportunity so you can keep this hyperlink here and always have a live version so you can track the um the move from aversion back to denial back to returning confidence but i think that's where we are uh no one has a perfect crystal ball but these patterns tend to repeat and we've already made a huge long-term fundamental case over the last four weeks in our notes you can uh click on the cobra kai article from last week um and then ah here's the previous note up here where it says, I think when you take a look at the most hated stock in the S&P 500, we did the most loved versus the most hated stock. We talked about it on um, Brad Smith's show on Cheddar on September 1st, and also uh, One America with um, with Greta Wall the same day. But um, these previous notes talk about the fundamental story. So if you guys are like, why is he just talking about charts and um, sentiment? You'll know that I, you know, for weeks I did the fundamental story. This is just extra, but it, it adds a nice flavor on top of it. But if you don't know what you own, all these charts don't mean anything. So you've got to do the work first. And then once you understand the weighing machine, then you can use this kind of stuff to figure out the voting machine. The weighing machine is the long-term result. The voting machine is the short-term uh, uh, manic nature of the stock market, which uh, Benjamin Graham talks about in Buffett's favorite book, The Intelligent Investor. So uh, last week we talked about the leg sweep and we said that, um, you know, here was support since the crash in March and basically it did this leg sweep below the volume to take out all the stops and then it uh, subsequently did a 51% rally in 29 days and then it came back down to, um, so this was to what? This was to 
from discouragement to anxiety and then it crashed right down to aversion and then it did another leg sweep it didn't take out the old leg took it did another leg sweep and now it's back on the run and actually it's better than this because this week it was up 1.48 percent and it got back above this line which is really interesting because it's looking very much like this you had this nice move so big leg sweep out to take all the stops then you had this move up and then uh, a reversal move up and it seems like we're in this range here and hopefully we start to see this big uh, move like we saw in May uh, only this time you would be in uh, not anxiety where it's going to drop back down you'd be more likely in denial where it's just going to chop a little bit and then resume upward because no one will believe it at that point and the fundamentals support it and that would be in line with history anytime it's traded at this big of a discount 38 percent discount to book it recovers within months not within years that was 2009 and 1992 were the only times that it traded down to this level of discount and if it ever trades to this level of discount again in my lifetime i will again be buying hand over fist as we are now so um so that is the update here and and by the way what a perfect setup you swept everyone out and now we've got earnings coming up where in the last couple of weeks moynihan and shrewsbury of uh bank of america and wells fargo outgoing cfo of wells fargo were talking about effectively saying at the barclays conference that they were over reserved and the big four banks are probably over reserved by about 23 billion dollars due to the accounting change uh that took place in q2 due to Cecil, which made it look like their earnings dropped $29 billion year over year, when in effect their earning uh, pre-tax only dropped $6 billion year over year if you compared apples to apples with the 2019 accounting standard versus the paper change in 2020, which required them to take 100% of potential expected losses up front. And as we're finding out, at the time that they took those losses, the IMF was saying that the U.S. was going to contract at 12% in 2020, and now it looks like we're going to contract at 3.4 or 3.5%. So it's a huge difference. They thought we were going to be negative in 2021. We're going to grow at 6% in 2021. So all of that $23 billion of excess reserve uh, credit reserves uh, will come back on as income in coming quarters as people find out that the uh, losses are much less than anticipated. And if you get another big stimulus package over the weekend or even an executive order, that would go further to uh, assist small businesses and thereby uh, the banks releasing reserves that they over-reserve for in Q2 during, due to the accounting change. Now, um, okay, the yield curve steepening is on track. This happens every cycle. The yield curve inverts, and that's what you're seeing right here. Uh, we saw last summer, and sure enough, six months later, we got a recession. Then it spikes up. This is a steepening. Everyone's focused on short rates and saying, how can banks make money with rates so low? It's not the short rates that they make money on. That's what they are, that's what they are charged for capital, what they lend capital at. Uh, so if you take the two 10-year spread, uh, the 10-year... 10-year yield is about over 5x the two-year yield and the spread is where they win and as you see here the same thing happens every time this steepens just like we're seeing here this steepens and you see financials the green line just take off for secular runs this uh inverts then steepens you bottom and then financials run off 
if it inverts, you bottom, curve steepens, financials take off. And I think we're going to have a monster secular move, also supported by the unparalleled demand for housing. And keep in mind, if you're skeptical about the housing-led recovery, C1982, it was the beginning of an 18-year secular bull market in the economy. Why? It was driven by demand from boomers who were starting their housing formation in 82. When you're 60 years old, you don't buy couches and bedrooms and cars and strollers and all that stuff. When you're 30, you buy all that stuff, TVs and, you know, all the stuff that goes in, you know, dishwashers, uh, um, refrigerators, you know, etc 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 and that drives the boat and that's going to drive the boat for the next 10 to 15 years and we've got you know if you thought 82 to 2000 was an incredible time just um just imagine that was only with 80 million boomers we've got 85 million millennials so um this is just beginning and it's a very good thing and those taking advantage of of uh bargain prices generational prices lows and some of the some of the high quality multi-decade, long-term, durable franchises are going to get rewarded hugely. And some of them, by the way, have been raising the dividend every year for the last 10, 20, 30 years on top of it. So every year, not only are you going to buy it at a 20, 30, 40, 50% discount, but you're also going to get a pay raise every single year for the rest of your life. So uh, that's a good thing. Or, you know, next 20, 20, 30 years, whatever, foreseeable future. Uh, this is, shows housing inventories, so it's not only unprecedented demand that's that's um, that's coming, but or or already here, but uh, the supply is down to multi-decade lows, not since seen since the beginning of the last house, housing boom, uh, which was from uh, the 2000 recession to 2007. Uh, the economic data continues to beat better than expected. We're still well at record highs above anything we've ever seen, even though it came down a little bit to, to September 30. It's still well above anything we've seen in decades. Uh, sentiment for this week came a little bit up, but most of them are in the mid-range. That's why I think we're still in this kind of rotation churn where I think cyclicals will start to get bid. And I think uh, potentially there's a little bit more to work out on some of the overowned tech and SaaS names. Um, this was, uh, you know, bullish here, it kind of seemed to bottom and, and sentiments coming up. So that, that could be a good thing, but the, this hasn't hit panic mode yet. So, uh, fear and greed, it was at 45 and then these managers have come down. So yeah, maybe they'll start to chase if the market runs, but again, these are mid range things. So it's not pound the table. And as I said, uh, three, four weeks ago, you're not going to make your money calling the market. You're going to make your money buying laggard sector high quality in laggard sectors and you saw that in september and i think that's going to continue to persist um the reopening trade is going to work cyclicals trades are going to work and it'll change day to day there'll be setbacks one city or one school will shut down or some stupid political decision and then you know tech will get bid for a day and everyone will say oh we're back and then but i think i think i think the die is cast and i think september marked the turning point where where you'll see relative outperformance. And uh, that's that for the article of the week. Now, if you're on the podcast, we're going to cut off in a minute and a half. We still have a few important things to cover. So you should go on to hedgefundtips.com. Uh, there will be the video cast. Just fast forward to mini, minute 60, and then you won't have to replay it unless you want to. You're welcome to. Um, but this, okay, so this, this is the chart we put out a couple weeks ago on Wells Fargo. It's not only held this level, so basically um, 15 out of the last 16 times these ADXs crossed, 
Um, the the uh, stock rallied going all the way back. And what happened, it, it, it uh, swept below this and then it closed above. We closed up 1.848% on Wells Fargo this week. So this thesis is still well intact. It was nice to see that. Um, this, again, you have the live link. You can continue to follow it as we uh, likely move from aversion to denial. What do I think is going to be the catalyst at this stage? Look, you could wake up any day and the, the bank regulators could wake up and say, oh, wait, if we want a sustainable recovery, we need credit growth. Let's take the asset cap off of Wells Fargo. That would make a lot of sense. But you really need the whole group to start to work. And I think you're going to start to see that uh, in earnings in, on um, – uh, in within the next few weeks, they're the first group to report earnings, I think the 13th of October. So 11 days from now, I think bank earnings start. You can double check that on the uh, earnings calendar. Um, so that's probably going to be the catalyst. And in the case of Wells Fargo, remember, they had 